Acts chapter 17, the passage that we read. And again, I can't go into this in great detail, but I want to spend a little bit of time just looking at the whole chapter. And this morning, what we did in Acts chapter 5 was look at how the good news has to be told in, in the church, in religious circles and so on. And what I want to look at this evening is how we communicate the good news, in, particularly in, in three areas that we'll see uh, as we go through this chapter. If you're not a Christian, then the way that you become a Christian is not by becoming religious, but by believing the good news about Jesus, by coming to know Jesus. And if we are Christians and we seek to communicate the gospel, that is the good news that we are trying to communicate. It's not a, a message that's primarily about morality. It's not a message that's primarily about what we do in church. It is a message that is uh, centered on who Jesus Christ is. If you like a, a verse as a central verse, if you go down to verse 6, Uh, when they're in Thessalonica, when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Uh, I, when I started training to become a minister, I did a lot of preaching in different places, and because you are in training, you tend, and you go to different places, you tend to have two or three sermons that you use all the time. And I had one sermon in particular that I liked because it came from the King James Version of this, which said that these men who have turned the world upside down have come here. And I just loved that phrase, the world being turned upside down. I didn't know that the NIV part of it was, these men who've caused trouble all over the world have now come here. So everywhere I went, I was preaching about someone who caused trouble uh, wherever he went. And it was one elder in particular who suggested to me it was a particularly apposite verse uh, to use. But actually, there's a serious point in that, that if your Christianity is real, then you're going to be accused of being a troublemaker. There are people who are naturally troublemakers. There are people who are naturally obnoxious. I'm not defending that. But I'm saying this, that if you follow Jesus Christ in a hostile culture or in an apathetic or antagonistic culture, then at some point, what's going to happen is people are going to accuse you of causing trouble. So we'll go through this and just look at the, the, the three places that are mentioned. Thessalonica, first of all. Thessalonica, you know the two books in the New Testament, First and Thessalonians, was the capital of Macedonia. It was a harbor town like Dundee. It was a free city, and that's important to understand because in the Roman Empire, The cities were not free except they were declared to be by the emperor, and if you were a citizen of that city, you were then considered to be a Roman citizen, as Paul was. And uh, this city, Thessalonica, was a free city. It was a relatively large city. It had a Jewish synagogue, and uh, when Paul went there, he went first of all, as was his custom, to the synagogue. Look at verse 2. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue. We know from Thessalonians that there weren't many Jews who believed, that the majority of people who believed were pagans or some were what they call God-fearing Greeks. 
But how did that happen? How did Paul go into a situation where many gods were worshipped, where perhaps only the, the Jewish synagogue had a monotheistic view of the one God, where there was trouble, and as we'll see again, uh, persecution and so on. How, how were they able to bring the gospel so that people believed and things changed? Because that's what we believe in. That's something that is hugely important. We believe that by teaching the gospel, that what happens is God's Holy Spirit works, God's Word will not return to Him empty, and people are, as Peter says, born again by the living Word of God. When people talk about the church, they say, well, how do we get more people to come to church? How do we attract people? How do, we... do you know that's not the issue? The issue is not attracting people to church. We're asking, how do we attract people to Jesus Christ? How do we change people's lives? And we don't, and we can't. We just can't. And when people say, well, if we have our praise like this, then that will change people's lives. No, it won't. Our praise is a response to God's Word. And there are times when we weep, and there are times when, I was going to say we dance, maybe not here, but you, if you want to, feel free. Um, There are times when we weep, yeah, and there are times when we dance. Uh, Presbyterians do it decently and in order and at the back, but you can, that's why you're sitting there, Chris, so, but that's, that's, sometimes we do that, but our worship is not to try and work something up in us, it's a response to what God has done, and it's the same with good works. We don't do good works so that people will see, wow, aren't they wonderful people, and we want to become like them. We do good works because God has worked in our heart and God has poured out His love and God has given us the love of Jesus Christ for people. So it it is absolutely crucial and it is essential that we see that society has changed as the Word is proclaimed. And that's why the devil always seeks to suppress the Word and that's why the biggest tragedy in Scotland in the past hundred years, I think, is how the Word of God has often been sidelined in the churches. Uh, As as I say, I'm reflecting a lot on being 25 years in the ministry. I was in a church in Edinburgh called Baclue and Greyfriars as a student when I was studying, and uh, we had a really good youth fellowship there. And one night, there was about 40 or 50 uh, young people in, and there was a Roman Catholic priest who was there. And afterwards, he came up to me and he said, David, this is unbelievable. I said, what? He said, you've got nothing. You've really got nothing. He said, how is this possible? And I said, we've got nothing. He said, well, you've got nothing except the Bible. I said, well, that's a big thing. You know, that's, that's a huge, huge issue. And I realized how important that was. Um, some of you will know Clan, the Clan gathering across in St. Andrews. And I was across there this summer uh, speaking at that and just talking with some of the clan people. And they were asking, how do we get more people to come? Because we've reached the 5,000 mark. It's not growing anymore. And I said to them, look around. Look at your demographic. This is mostly older people. And they said, oh, yeah. How do you get young people to come? I said, you know how you get young people to come? Teach the Bible. Teach the Bible. They said, well, don't we need more music? I said, no, you'll get better music in most other places. Have music, absolutely. But the key thing is, get people who will come and who will teach the Bible as it is. 
because that is the most radical, it's the most important thing that can happen. God works through the Bible. Some of you who are are new here, sometimes you get questions, what's this church about? What's it like? What's your philosophy? Here's the philosophy of ministry. It's very simple. It's teach the Word of God and see what happens. Don't determine what's going to happen. Don't try and work. You, you will discover if you come here that we're not all that good at planning. That's putting it mildly. Uh, creative chaos is the way I prefer to talk about it. But the important thing is you teach the Bible and you believe that God is sovereign and you believe in the Holy Spirit and God saves whom he wants to save. God works in the way that he wants to work. We keep making plans and then God keeps interfering with them. And that is the way, actually, it should be, except we shouldn't make the plans. We should just rely on the Lord in the first place. So as Paul does that, he goes into Thessalonica and he's teaching the Bible. Look what he does. And I'm, I won't repeat all of this, but the pattern is, is here not only in this chapter, but in other parts of Acts. Verse 2, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. It is very important that you do not accept what the atheists and the secularists and the humanists and so on in our culture tell us, where they say, there are reasonable people who are scientific people, and then there are people who, have, who are of faith, but they're not reasonable. Actually, our faith is incredibly reasonable. And it's, it's, that's one of the great things that we are, we are able to communicate to other people. The more I've gone on, the more I've just been astounded at how the Word of God applies in every situation and how when you read a newspaper and people express shock at different things, you go, if you read the Bible, you wouldn't be shocked. They reasoned with them from the Scriptures. That's an important thing too. It's not just we've got all these clever arguments. It's we're reasoning from the Scripture. And look what he did. Explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. The the, the heart of Paul's message. In another uh, Greek port, Corinth, he wrote a letter to them and said, we preach Christ crucified, the wisdom of God. And that's what we want to do here. There is a church not too far from here where... um, The minister wrote in his newsletter and bulletin that the atonement was a barbaric doctrine. And I just thought, you know, you're in so much danger. What a stupid and silly thing to say. The atonement is the heart of the Christian faith. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. When we celebrated communion this morning, we were saying, we will not die. We will not be condemned because Jesus died for us. It is the absolute heart of the gospel. And wherever you have a church where the cross is sidelined or not explained biblically, you do not have whatever you may have. You may have a religion, but you don't have a Christian church. So the important thing is, yes, we reason. We reason from the Scriptures. The cross is central. Also with verse 3, it's about Jesus. The Christ had to suffer, rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now what's interesting about that is as some of you get more and more into theology and different things, you'll find people start talking about the historical Jesus and the biblical Jesus and my own personal Jesus, as though there were lots of different Jesuses. There's one Jesus. There's one Lord, one God and Father of all, one Holy Spirit. There is one Jesus. 
I was so impressed when um, Brian and uh, Tim and others, we ran the, the course, uh, The Life of Christ, and I want us to run it again. Um, some of us in some of the house groups, I think, will use it. I thought it was brilliant. It's by John Dixon and the folks from the Center for Public Christianity in Australia. And what I absolutely loved about it is you watch it and you just go, this really happened. This is real. Uh, I think it was Steve Kavanagh who just, for him, it was just a a life-changing experience just to grasp the reality that there's a really was and is a person called Jesus Christ. And for all that the theologians and the historians and others turn around and say, well, we don't like this Jesus, so we're going to change into this Jesus, we're going to change into that one, that's not the way that it is. The Jesus of the Bible is not comfortable. The Jesus of the Bible, we take time to get to know, we long to know Him, as I said this morning. But that's what... I want to do, and that's what we do in this church. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. There is no other name, no other name given under heaven by which people can be saved. And the result of this in Thessalonica, Jews, Greeks, God-fearers, and well-known women. It's interesting that uh, that happens in Thessalonica and also in uh, Athens as well. The Christian church early on seem to draw and to accept and to attract women. Now, you may say, well, how is that strange? Because nowadays, isn't it not 75, 80% women? Yes, in, I would argue, yes, in many situations where the Bible is not really taught. But um, there's no reason why it should appeal more to women than to men. But in this culture, it was astounding that uh, women were treated with respect and honor, and you'll find that in the early church, that it was of significance that there were prominent women who were converted in Thessalonica and also in Athens. And also in Thessalonica, we find another basic, basic principle that there was opposition. There became a legal ban because some of the religious people stirred up the crowd in the marketplace, formed a mob, started a riot, dragged Jason and the other brothers before the city officials. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Oh, they're causing trouble. We have to be careful then. We have to... And so a legal ban was placed upon them. I... um, Not to the extent... And I, I, I would not claim to be persecuted to the extent that Christians in the Sudan or in Korea or elsewhere are not at all thank the Lord that we have a a great amount of freedom. But in this country, we're increasingly faced with the danger of that. And in 25 years of ministry, it is not an unusual experience for me to be banned, uh, actually from churches as well as from um, other places as well. It's so funny when you go to a university, which is meant to be about free speech and everything else, and they ask, "Are are you going to say this? Are you going to say that? And they want to ban you because you cause trouble. Um, that's the way it is. Because one thing in our culture that we have to do is just simply accept that there is one king and his name is Jesus. And uh, we don't bow before anybody else. Then we go on to Berea, 
which was 50 miles southwest of Thessalonica. Again, he went to the synagogue. And again, you find that there's a response. This time, the Bereans, verse 11, are of more noble character. They received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Again, you'll find that what Paul does and what the early Christians do, they reason, they explain, they prove, they proclaim, they persuade. UCCF have something called Christian persuaders. I think it's a great idea. We, we have to gently instruct. We have to explain. We have to discuss. We have to show people where what they believe leads them, and where it leads them to, and we have to ourselves demonstrate the reasonableness of the faith that we have, a faith that is in Jesus Christ. And I think an important thing in this, uh, what applies in Thessalonica applies here as well, but I would add something to this. I would say we teach doctrine, which is really important, but we don't indoctrinate. Someone said indoctrination is tyrannical instruction demanding uncritical acceptance. We don't do that in this church. We don't say, you've got to accept this, or that's it. We teach the Word of God. We teach doctrine, but you are encouraged to bring your Bibles and to sit with your Bibles and to question according to the Scriptures. We learn from one another. To be honest, I'm not all that interested in your opinions. We all have lots of opinions. But to discuss and to seek and to try and to find out truth. We do not indoctrinate, but we do teach doctrine. And I would say this, that true Christianity allows its claims to be examined and decided upon. And actually, true religion, that should be the case. What you'll find in many religions is you will accept this, you will believe this, you will do this, and you dare not question. And that goes in liberal forms as well as non-liberal uh, forms of religion. We're not afraid. If, again, if, if you're here and you're saying, well, I've got questions about this, I've got doubts about this, I'm not sure about that, I would rather you were questioning than you were thinking, in fact, I'd rather you were questioning than that you were not thinking. It's, we, we really encourage people from very youngest age to question and to think. And if you ever want to know what it's like to try and explain the gospel to someone who's questioning and thinking and has got lots of hard questions, come along to the Monday Club and talk to some of the kids there, um, especially some of the older ones. So that's what we do. Of course, we rely upon prayer and upon the Holy Spirit. Of course we do. But our aim, not but, and included in that, our aim is to communicate the gospel. Now, they would then go on to Athens, and Paul was there and greatly distressed to see the city full of idols and so on from verse 16. Athens, a great city. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle had been there, and uh, we learned some basic lessons from that. John Stott, who recently died, gave a fantastic series of talks on, on this section of this chapter and uh, I just want to mention some of it. One of the highlights for me of, of 25 years of ministry has actually been to go to Athens and to go to the Parthenon and the Acropolis and to stand on Mars Hill where Paul made this speech and to see that whole speech 
in, it's written in stone in that place. And it's an extraordinary thing because if you look uh, through into chapter, in, into verse 22, he stands at the Areopagus and says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I looked around and carefully observed your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this, an unknown, with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. That was such a radical and offensive statement for him to make. Why? Because where he stood, on his left-hand side, was the Parthenon. Massive, massive temple that could be seen for tens of miles around. It was the absolute center. And the people he was speaking to spent fortunes maintaining that place so that the gods could live there. And Paul says, actually, God doesn't live in a temple. You've wasted your money. He, 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 he absolutely, in one sentence, destroys the basis of their religion. And I, I remember standing there and just being completely overwhelmed by how real it was and by thinking what guts he had and what amazing ability and what amazing opportunities God gave him. Well, let me just say about the Athens situation. Again, there's so much in it. I'm not going to go into it all, but let me just give a, a, just a general thing about the four things Stott says that um, Paul did. And I think this is very helpful. Verse 16, he saw. He saw that the city was full of idols. He observed. And if you're going to communicate the gospel, you have to observe what is going on around you. He saw the Acropolis and the Parthenon. And the Agora, the, the Agora was the marketplace where all the artists and the paintings and everything else would be sold. But what Paul saw most of all was the idolatry. He saw the beauty, but he saw the idolatry. And because of that, the second thing is that he felt. And the word that is used, he was, he was greatly distressed, is a Greek word, paroxnia, which it, it carries this idea of pain and hurt and anger. And, and revulsion. He saw what was there and he was just absolutely appalled by it. Sometimes we live too comfortably in this world. Sometimes we find ourselves just going along with things and we don't have the same feelings at all. Every now and then we might tut-tut. But Paul doesn't tut-tut. Paul is heartbroken. Why? Well, Paul has a motivation for evangelism, certainly of wanting to save the lost. He says about his own people, Israel, I would that myself be cast into hell in order to save them. He was driven by compassion for the lost. But he was also driven, and sometimes we forget this, by this sense of the honor of God. I uh, use this wee book here, The Valley of Vision, uh, for my own, in my own prayers, and I find it really, really helpful. And what I read this morning was this. Um, Glorify thyself and I shall rejoice, for to bring honor to thy name is my sole desire. I adore thee that thou art God, and long that others should know it, feel it, and rejoice in it. Oh, that all men might love and praise thee, that thou mightest have all the glory from the intelligent world. Let sinners be brought to thee for thy dear name. To the eye of reason, everything respecting the conversion of others is as dark as midnight. 
But thou canst accomplish great things. The cause is thine, and it is to thy glory that men should be saved. Lord, use me as thou wilt. Do with me what thou wilt. But, O, promote thy cause. Let thy kingdom come. Let thy blessed interests be advanced in this world. O, do thou bring in great numbers to Jesus. Let me see that glorious day, and give me to grasp from multitudes of souls. Let me be willing to die to that end. And while I live, let me labor for thee to the utmost of my strength, spending time profitably in this work, both in health and weakness. It is thy cause and kingdom I long for, not my own. O answer thou my request. It is that God might be glorified. I hate it, and I mean hate it, when people on television mock God. I hate it when people think they're being smart and clever and say, oh, well, if God did this, what about that? Because they're mocking my Savior. Um, I, I learned a huge lesson from a, a man once. I've told most of the congregation here this before, but it, it did just so stick in my head. I'll tell you this story again. I was playing football, and, uh, you know, I was actually not bad. I couldn't really kick the ball, but I could run because I was slim in those days. Uh, and I was playing football my first charge in Brora, and um, it was really very, very funny because initially the team, my team, wouldn't pass the ball to me because I was the minister. And eventually I went and kicked one of my own team, tackled them, took the ball, and they came to respect me a little bit. And uh, we carried on playing. And another Christian was on the team, and we were playing a team where the guy who was... Um, the main central defender, and I was the winger, and the other Christian was the attacker. The guy was the main central defender. He never stopped blaspheming. He never stopped swearing. He was, everything was Jesus Christ this, Jesus Christ that. And I was really, I didn't like it at all. I was really uncomfortable with it. And I thought, what can I say without sounding a complete prig and idiot? And my friend went up to the guy, and he put his arm around him, and he said, listen, Jesus Christ, he's my friend. And he's more than that. He's my savior. So he means a big deal to me. So he said, if you're going to swear, he said, and that's the minister over there, by the way, as well. And he says, if you're going to swear, would you mind using other swear words? And the guy was completely shocked. And he said, what? He said, you know, he says, use the F word or whatever it is. I don't care. But don't use Jesus Christ. He says, well, he says, I normally use other swear words. But I was just using Jesus Christ because I thought that would be less offensive to you. And... <laughs> And he said, so you don't mind if we use lots of other words? And, and he said to him, look, he says, I don't care. He says, it's you. If you can't express yourself except through, uh, you know, stupid words like that, that's up to you. It doesn't offend me, but what offends me is when you use Jesus Christ as a swear word. That's offensive. And I thought, actually, what a fantastic witness. What a fantastic explanation that was. Because he was concerned for the honor of Jesus Christ. And we must learn to do that. There was a class in this university, which was a very large class, and one of the lecturers was teaching, and he was mocking. He was mocking people who said, nobody here really believes in the family anymore, and he was mocking it. And he said, it's just religious people. And he said, nobody's religious. Anyone here religious? And people laughed. And one girl put her hand up, and she said, actually, I am. I believe in Jesus. And the place was stunned just absolutely stunned. Good for her. Some of you will know that in the dental school here, there's a girl who goes to Central Baptist, and she did a wonderful thing because one of the 
heads of the, the, one of the Wellcome Trust buildings arranged a lecture, as he was perfectly entitled to do, on creation evolution. But he subtitled it, and he sent out an invitation on why creationists are stupid. And it was entirely out of order for him to do that. But nobody said a word. But that girl, and she was, I was so impressed with her, uh, Emily, she, she got in touch with the university, and she got in touch with the courier, the newspaper, and she made a real stand, and she was spot on, absolutely correct. Why? Not because she was hurt, but because for the honor of God. That's what was there. He felt it, and I hope we feel it too. He acted. Again, he reasoned. Again, he taught. In, in uh, three places, he taught in the marketplace, in the agora, he taught in the temple, and he taught in the, the, the philosopher's place, I think, was the simplest way to call it, the Areopagus. Now, when he did that, let me just mention something. In case you're looking at this, you look at verse, for example, verse 18, a group of Epicurean Stoic philosophers. We tend to think that we're an advanced stage in our society, and there's a lot of new arguments, and a lot of people didn't believe in God, uh, did believe in God before they were, because they were ignorant, but now there's new information, and people know a whole lot more. Let me tell you who the Epicureans were. They believed either that there was no God or that God was so remote it didn't matter. They believed in random atoms and in chance, that there was no life after death. In other words, they were just exactly the same as the atheists today who think that they've discovered something new. Paul was arguing against this 2,000 years ago. The Stoics, on the other hand, they were kind of like your New Age hippies in some sense, except not quite as chilled. Um, they they uh, believed you should live in harmony with nature and reason, and they were pantheists. So on the one hand, you had the Epicureans who were kind of, they believed in chance and escape and hedonism and pleasure, and there was nothing except us. And then the Stoics who were kind of fatalists, what will be will be, and there's fate and Mother Earth and submission and suffering. And Paul comes in and he challenges those philosophies and shows how weak and inadequate they are by proclaiming Jesus Christ. And he does it in three ways. I'll just mention them because we have to do it. There was church evangelism, evangelism amongst religious people. We need to continue to do that because one day people in churches will start believing the gospel and the world will be turned upside down. There's church evangelism. There was street evangelism. On the Agora, that's Paul, the, the, the implication there is Paul is wandering around saying, listen, you guys, what are you up to? There's, you've even got an altar that's to an unknown God. And he begins to explain it. And we do need street evangelism. I'm not sure how we do it. Um, I loved, we had a, a while ago, we had a jazz band here who played down in the Tartan Cafe. And some of you I know were at an acoustic ca uh, event in the Tartan Cafe last night. Uh, and what I loved about that is the Tartan Cafe opened the doors and the jazz music you could hear wafting up the street. And um, some of us went and stood outside, Chris in particular, and I just loved watching Chris at work talking to people and inviting them in. And I thought, yeah, we, we need that. We need that marketplace evangelism, connecting with people, doing things like that. And then there's the Areopagus evangelism, and the nearest thing I can think of that is actually university evangelism. University is a place where you're supposed to be thinking and trying to work things out. And it's great to do evangelism there, and we'll, 
Uh, Neil Cowan, I better warn him that you're going to say a wee bit about the um, CU mission in a moment. But that is what we are, that's what we've got to do. And then, of course, we communicate this message. And again, I, I only have time just to name what is there. Five great things about God. Paul teaches God as the creator. He teaches God as the sustainer. Verse 25. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. He himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. He teaches God as the ruler. God from one man made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they live. I think it's extraordinary that God determined that you should be here tonight, that God determined that you are in this city, that God determined for a reason and a purpose. He teaches of God as the Father. Verse 28, in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. What Paul does is he uses the pagan poets to expose the inconsistency of the pagans. We have this marvelous truth of God as being our Father. And he teaches of God as the judge, verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. For he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. I think it is just absolutely wonderful that it is exactly that same message that is needed in our culture, and in our society today. God is our creator. God is our sustainer. God is our provider. God is our judge. I think that uh, we, we have this just wonderful and great message. So there's a depth and there's a power in Paul's motivation. And I hope it's a depth and a power that we have. There's a depth and there's a power in his message and there's a depth, and there's a power in his methodology. Too many Christians have given up on the gospel for other people. They believe it for themselves, but they seem to have given up. Too many Christians have become somewhat stoical, like the Stoics. But what's going to happen is going to happen. But we shouldn't and we don't need to be like that. Too many Christians have become like headless chickens running around trying to solve this and trying to deal with that and trying to do... And the more you go on as a Christian, the more you realize it's not rocket science. You just come back to the Word of God. You rely on the Word of God. You stick with the Word of God. You follow Jesus. You pray. You share in fellowship together. You don't need all the complicated programs and everything else. Just stick with Christ follow Christ, stick with His Word, and you will turn the world upside down. And I'd love it to see, those of you who are new students, I'd love it to see the University of Dundee turned upside down. I think um, last year it was, we had John Lennox come here, and to have three overflow lecture theaters, and just the extraordinary impact that had on the university well, we pray for many, many, many more things like that. But not just the university, the housing estates. In a couple of weeks' time, I want to show you something about uh, where Ralph is at the moment with Mez and the guys there in Nidri and the work that they're doing. That's hugely, hugely important. And the kind of thing 
that we need in this city as well. Everywhere. We want to see the world turned upside down. Let me finish with just a word of personal testimony. In 1983, I was in the process of being elected senior president of the Students' Union of Edinburgh University. Uh, I'd worked really hard for it for over three years. It was my fourth year. And uh, I was the favorite, believe it or not, to be elected. And then at the very, very last minute, the student newspaper ran an article attacking me personally, uh, stating that I was an extreme left-wing communist economically and an extreme right-wing fascist morally. So I kind of lost all the votes <laughs> for all the people who didn't know. I mean, I ended up coming second. Um, and I, I just remember the night I was so gutted. I was just sitting there just absolutely gutted because that was my career because I'd been offered a a post uh, after I'd done that, I'd been offered a fairly safe uh, seat to stand for election. I was thinking, Lord, why did I do all this? Why did I do these three or four years? What was the point of all of that? And my friend David Meredith uh, came up to me, and ironically, he and some communists came at the same time, and they both actually said the same thing, which was, even the communists said this, God has got something else for you that's a lot better. And I was thinking, what's better than being prime minister? Because I was kind of ambitious, you know. (laughs) Could have to marry into royalty, you know. That's not going to work. What's better than that? I tell you what's been better. What's been better is being able to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I honestly believe that that is more important. Three years ago, I stood in borders here uh, and uh, wanted trying to communicate the gospel. We had the, it was a cafe thing. We were launching the Dawkins letters and there was about a hundred people present. And as I stood there and as people started firing in questions and all over the store, if you went into that store that night, you couldn't help but hear the gospel because the management had put the speakers on everywhere. And as I stood there in those questions, I thought, you know, 25 years ago, I was doing this in a university politics setting. People were throwing things, uh, being aggressive, attacking, and so on, asking questions. And I was saying, what was the point? Why did I do all that? The answer is that so that I had the experience of debating and discussing and knew about that environment. And then the Lord gave me over 20 years experience in the ministry, dealing with death, dealing with heartache, dealing with the questions that people have. Only reason I'm saying that, I don't, I'm not trying to, you know, kind of, bum myself up in any way whatsoever. Forgive the expression, it's the only one I can think of. But it's, I, I, I'm just saying that we have no idea what God has in plan for, plan for us. Proverbs says, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. We in this church have over this year experienced so many things that are wonderful, but also so many things that are heartbreaking and perplexing and confusing. And yet, you know this, this is not a safe church, it's not a comfortable church, but I tell you this, I love what God is doing in this place. I can't even explain it. I don't know, but I know that this is true. If we proclaim Christ and we seek to follow Christ, 
then we'll have a rough ride, but it will be absolutely thrilling and wonderful to see. And uh, I say at this point as well that you should pay honor to those to whom honor is due. Um, I cannot describe how uh, grateful I am to the Lord for uh, Annabelle and for the ministry that she has with me. I do regard it as a joint ministry. I'm so thankful for my family and for uh, the ministry that they have. I think the best evangelists I know are my children, um, and I'm just very, very grateful to the Lord for that. I'm also incredibly grateful for so many of you in this congregation who are committed to Jesus Christ, who are willing to put up uh, with me as a minister with all the idiosyncrasies that are there, and who, who have a heart to serve the Lord. You know, this morning, was it not moving to see so many different people who were joining the church? I mean, Estonians. I mean, I didn't even know where Estonia was before I met Sylvie, really. Estonians, Malaysian, American, even Scottish. You know, amazingly, in the past year, we've even had Dundonians come, which is fantastic. It's just great. And I, and, and I looked at that group this morning, and I thought, I was very moved by it, and I thought, what on earth brings these people together? It's not that we, we look at somebody and say, wow, this is great, or that church is great, or that's great. The only thing that unites us is Jesus Christ. But when you put the word only there, that's just such a pathetic word, because that's the really the most important thing. And uh, I, I believe with all my heart that God is at work in this place, and it's a tremendously exciting time to be here. I thank you for your part in that, but uh, we look to Christ and we give him all the glory. Let's pray. Lord, bless your word to us. Thank you that your gospel is always dynamic. Thank you that your gospel turns the world upside down, that this nation, Scotland, was once a very, very dark nation, and at the time of the Reformation, you turned it upside down. And so many times, this nation has backslidden, and you've intervened, and you have caused renewal and revival. Even in this place, in the 19th century, in this very building, there was a renewal and revival that was felt throughout the world. Thank you, O Lord, that you've done that even in the, the last century in the island of Lewis and the, the stunning work that went on there. But Lord, we know that we as a nation have turned so far away from you, and we ask you just simply to do it again. And we pray that you would work through us in this congregation, in other churches in Dundee, and everywhere where people seek to honor and to glorify and to worship you. For we ask it in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. .org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland please visit the website of Solace the Centre for Public Christianity at solace-cpc.org Once again that's www.solace-cpc.org Thanks for listening